The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another live Clubland Q&A. It is Friday, September 1st, the dawning of a new month. I am Andrew Lawton, guest hosting for Mark Stein here. But in keeping with some semblance of tradition, it is 3 o'clock Eastern time where I am in London, Ontario. But I always like to pay honor to those who are west of me. So I'll start in Baker Island where it is Friday morning at 7 a.m. Juneau, Alaska. It is 11.01 a.m. on Friday. Now, I actually saw Juno on the second Mark Stein cruise in Alaska, which was quite lovely, and you head a little bit further east from there. It is just after 1 o'clock in Calgary, Alberta, one of my favorite cities to visit, certainly in Canada. Uh, we continue on where it is 3 o'clock in Atlanta, 4 o'clock in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and we have uh, just a little bit beyond then uh, into the evening, we find it is uh, coming up uh, just after 7 o'clock in Timbuktu and Docker. It is uh, in Lagos, 8 p.m. tonight. It's also the same time in London, London, Edinburgh, and Edinburgh and Cardiff. So you get to uh, take your pick of those. Uh, Vienna, one of my favorite cities in the world. It is 9 o'clock Friday night there. Hope the weekend is doing you well. And uh, we move on where it's, I, I, don't, I don't know if we're allowed to do Kaliningrad, uh, so I won't say the time in Kaliningrad. I don't want to get uh, put on some sanctions list there, but it is 10 o'clock in Tallinn, and we head on into the wee hours of the morning. It is in Ashgabat, just past midnight. And uh, going all the way forward to there, what else do we have? Uh, Kiridamati. It is Saturday morning at 9.02. So good morning to those from Kiridamati. Uh, this is the Clubland Q&A. I have done no preparation beyond the reading that I would normally do because you are the ones that set the agenda for the show. So if you are a Mark Stein Club member, you can chime in with your questions on anything and everything you would like in the comment section, and we'll try to get to as many of your questions as we can. And for that matter, if you dislike anything you hear me say, which is probably more common than I would like to admit, you can log your obje uh, objection, and I will try to get to as many of those as I can as well. I mentioned Calgary, Alberta. It looks like our first question comes from Airdrie, Alberta, which I actually went horseback riding in Airdrie, Alberta, uh, maybe about a year ago, and I, which is, in retrospect, probably cruel to the poor horse, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, this is a question from Bill Decker, who writes, It takes a lot to get this Dutchman to stop sitting on his wallet, but the recent needless, heartless death of Sheila Lewis has finally convinced me to join the club. Earlier this year, there was a conversation between Mark and James Golden on his show discussing the expansion of assisted suicide in Canada. The point was made that Canada has 10 times more assisted suicides than California, which has a comparable population and legalized the process at about the same time. Although both jurisdictions have similar incentives to kill off the elderly, disabled, or anyone likely to draw on old age, health, or other social benefits, it does not explain why Canada kills 10 times more people than California. Is Canada's higher rate of assisted suicide due to the government monopoly on providing medical health care, which is unique among Western governments? Related to this, Sheila Lewis did not end her own life. She effectively had a death sentence pronounced over her by denying her an organ transplant, which would have extended her life. 
This happened simply because she would not take the COVID jab. Since she was an Albertan trapped in Canada, there was no private medical alternative in her country without submitting to the groupthink and ideology of the federal and provincial system single-payer healthcare provider. Uh, and then there's a, a kind note for Mark there, which I, I know Mark very much appreciates. Well, first off, welcome to the Mark Stein Club, Bill. And yes, that Sheila Lewis story was tragic. If you haven't watched it yet, this week on the Mark Stein Show, Mark shared his two interviews with Sheila Lewis, which he did. One when she had a little bit more hope and optimism in the process in front of her, when she had just filed suit against, at the time, Her Majesty's government, I believe. No, it was His Majesty's government. Never mind. And then again, when it seemed as though she had exhausted all of her legal options because the Supreme Court of Canada had declined to hear her case. And, and the upshot of all this is that on Friday last week, Sheila Lewis died without having ever gotten her organ transplanted. And what was particularly cruel in this process is that she was denied this organ transplant because she was on the uh, list of people that in the government's view was undeserving for reason of not getting vaccinated against COVID. Now, uh, Sheila Lewis was not by any measure, an anti-vaxxer. She had gotten all her childhood vaccines. She actually had to get another course of vaccines to make sure they were all up to date because there was some issue, if I recall correctly, with not having the record. So she redid her childhood vaccines, but she looked at the COVID vaccine and said, you know what? I'm not a fan of this. Now, she had a testimonial from doctors, uh, from experts. She got an antibody test. She had had COVID twice and had natural immunity. She was, as we know, a lot safer, a lot more protected against COVID by virtue of her natural immunity than she would have been had she been vaccinated, especially at the time this was all transpiring, which was uh, near the end of last year and into this year. But that wasn't good enough. The government in Alberta decided that if you did not get the COVID vaccine, you were unworthy of an organ. And the false equivalence we hear from people about what the implications of this are has been really, really unsettling. People that say, well, it's the same as giving a new liver to an alcoholic or giving a new lung to a chain smoker or whatever. But, it, but it's not actually that at all because she was in need of an organ transplant and it had nothing to do with her likelihood of getting COVID and of having an adverse reaction to that. And, and by the way, when I'm talking about it in nondescript terms, I, I'd have to check on this, but there is in Canada where I am broadcasting from right now, a publication ban in place that prohibits me, as I understand it, from mentioning the organ itself. And it prohibited Sheila from discussing the organ that she needed and from discussing details about her medical condition that would lead people to understand what organ it was that she needed. So it wasn't just enough to deny this woman the organ. It was also about silencing her so she could not effectively in the public square talk about what was happening. She couldn't talk about the hospital at which she was being treated. She couldn't talk about the doctors. She couldn't talk about what it was that she actually needed. And there was a particular cruelty to that because she had wanted and really did until really her last days spend time raising public awareness about what was happening to her. And it was a, a tragic case. It was a heartbreaking case. Anyone in the Alberta government could have spoken up and said, we are not going to let this happen. But even people who were very much against vaccine mandates and lockdowns and other contexts did not do that. They did not rise and intervene in this case. They reached at some point with her a settlement, but that settlement, as we learned, didn't involve her getting an organ. So all of this is to say that in Canada right now, there is a huge problem in that one of the most effective forms of healthcare in the country and that the one thing that you can manage to get with great efficiency is assisted suicide. If you want assisted suicide, it's the only procedure in Canada that you could probably just get without any wait list whatsoever and without any vaccine mandate. I think they'll take your life whether you're vaccinated or not. But anything else in Canada is a colossally mismanaged mess. You have people that are spending hours and hours and hours in waiting rooms with, in some cases, quite serious conditions. You have people that are waiting months to years on waiting lists for oh, knee surgery and hip surgery and things like that. 
depending on where they are in the country. And then you have all of these barriers and hurdles that are being put in place for people that need a life-saving organ transplant when the argument is not one rooted in medicine. It was not that this woman was at a greater risk of contracting or dying from COVID. It was just because this was the litmus test that the government wanted to put in about your worthiness as a patient. And it's one thing to look at this case and say, oh, it's a bit of an outlier. But there was actually a, another case uh, not long ago that I, I'm not as familiar with and I don't believe went through the courts at all. But a, a gentleman in Ontario, if I'm not mistaken, who also uh, was unable to get an organ transplant because of uh, not getting vaccinated. But then the, the strangest part of this is that uh, Trillium Gift for Life, which is the program that uh, is responsible for organ donation, ended up like calling up his wife and asking her about, I can't remember if it was like if, getting, trying to get her to register as an organ donor or asking her if he could have, if he could be an organ donor whenever um, he ended up uh, passing away. But it, it was something that was just so particularly brazen that uh, offended this uh, poor woman because she was losing or had lost her husband. I, I can't remember the exact timeline. And uh, they're asking, hey, by the way, we need some more organ donors here. And uh, this was something that in Canada we've become very good at and very world-renowned at. Because I remember years ago, we also looked at, you know, I don't know, Switzerland or the Netherlands. And those were the places that had the, the very liberal laws around assisted suicide. And, and there was a, a young man in Windsor, Ontario, uh, who is, I wrote a column about him, and this would have been like 2016, but I, I remember his name, Adam Clayton, and he ended up going overseas to end his life because at the time it was not available to him in Canada. But now Canada is going to be the destination. People that would not get an assisted suicide in their own countries are going to come to Canada because this is a country that has decided it is your lawful right to do what you will with your own body up to and including terminating it with the government's help. The, a government that said, oh, well, you don't really have the choice on whether you get vaccinated or not, but you have the choice to end your life because this is, they call it dignity. That That's the line that they use, death with dignity, as though there's something dignified in ending your life. And, and to go back to what Bill was saying there about the discrepancy between the Canadian experience and the California experience, the difference there is in eligibility criteria because in Canada, they continue to push and push and push into the point where there really won't be much in the way of safeguards by the time they're done. Originally, the laws in Canada were such that you needed to have a grievous and irremediable condition. Then you needed to have foreseeable death and you needed to be of sound mind to make the decision. So there were criteria that, again, allowed someone dying of multiple sclerosis or uh, amyotrophic uh, lateral sclerosis, ALS, uh, someone or other conditions, you could go through that and you could get an assisted suicide in Canada. That was allowed. And very quickly, the activists pounced on that to say that was too restrictive that it was leaving out people that wanted to put in what's called an advanced directive, which is to say, I'm of sound mind now, but I want to log my request to die when I'm no in ahead of time, when I'm no longer sound mind, I want you to kill me. And then beyond that, people who are not of sound mind at all that have a great deal of trouble with mental illness, whereas the changes that are coming in place in Canada now involve assisted suicide for people who have solely a mental illness. They may have no physical condition at all, just serious depression or serious anxiety or schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, doesn't matter, and they'll be able to get assisted suicide in Canada. And the truly ghastly one, there was a head of the Quebec College of Physicians and Surgeons who was testifying before Parliament. This was uh, within the last year, if I'm not mistaken. And he said that if an infant is born with serious deformities, the state should be able to euthanize that child, that infant of less than a year old, uh, because that is, again not about choosing something. It's not about dignity. That is about the state deciding that you are better off dead than alive. And it's very difficult to see a way forward in a society that has given up on life and that does not assert there is a right to life and that does not value and cherish life. 
And that's what's happened in Canada. And it's not something that is easily rectified. There was this supermarket, or not supermarket, but a, a department store chain called Simon's that ran about, maybe it was about a year ago, an entire ad campaign that was just glorifying this woman's decision to die. And it was like all of these nice little experiences they set up with her and filmed before she died. And they were really just showcasing. And I don't even know what the connection was because I once was in Ottawa and I didn't pack for the winter and I need, or I didn't pack for the weather and I needed to buy a coat and I ended up getting a coat at Simon's. And I, I'm not sure what the connection between Simon's and assisted suicide is, except now I'd, you know, sooner have an assisted suicide than spend a dollar at the store. But this is where we are in, in Canada and it's a culture of death that is rearing its head in, in the most unfortunate and despicable ways. And I, I don't know the way forward for it, except to say that it starts on the individual, which is that even if the government asserts there is a legal right to do this, we need to make sure that the individuals in our families, in our friend circles, in our communities, uh, feel that they have a hope and feel that they have a life and, and that we don't have people turning to this, not because they want it, but because they feel that there is no option for them otherwise which is increasingly what's happening when you have, you know, people that call up the Veterans Affairs hotline and say, I'm, you know, having some difficulty accessing supports, I need a wheelchair lift. And they say, well, have you considered dying instead? As though that's an entirely normal customer service offering for the state to give an individual. So uh, it's a little bit of a gloomy subject to start off on, but I, I thank you for it, uh, asking the question, Bill, and also for joining the club as well. Chris Davies writes, Andrew, what's your take on the need for re-education for Jordan Peterson? Is it time he upped sticks? I, is this a hockey, uh, a hockey term or a camping term? I don't know. Uh, how far do you think Trudeau is willing to push the totalitarian shtick before the good people of Canada vote for anyone but Trudeau? All the best to you, Mark and the Stein Online team. And related to that, uh, Kenneth writes, a bit of Canadian content, Andrew. Are ordinary Canadians horrified by the Orwellian treatment Jordan Peterson is getting, or do they think that damn right winger is getting what he deserves from the College of Psychologists of Ontario? So uh, just for, I don't even know if I need to give context on this or if it's just so entirely well known by now, but Jordan Peterson, uh, you may have heard of him, had a, a little bit of a splash standing up for free speech in the last couple of years. Uh, he is still, although he's not practicing per se, he's still a licensed psychologist in the province of Ontario, which means he's regulated by the province of Ontario's regulatory college for psychologists. He has been bombarded with complaints against him by people that have no grievance with his work as a psychologist, but don't like that he exists. They don't like that he exists. They don't like the type of stuff he talks about. So they try to attack his license. And the most recent bout of this has had some success because a bunch of people took his uh, what they saw as his least desirable tweets and they uh, sent them all in a neat little package with a bow to the college and said investigate this and the college said okay well uh, this is something that we're looking into and they said it's unbecoming conduct of a psychologist and yada yada and if you look at the tweets one of them was retweeting the leader of the Canadian Conservative Party one of them was responding to someone who talked about global overpopulation as being a huge problem, and he said, well, you're free to leave. And, and they're saying, oh, you're a psychologist. You're counseling suicide. That was the complaint, as though, you know, again, and to be honest, I think counseling suicide is actually a note in your favor in, a Canadian, uh, in, in the Canadian state now. But uh, all of this is uh, happening, and he had this recommendation that was actually a requirement that he have mandatory retraining on social media and communication or whatever from the college, which is absolutely absurd. It's forcing him into re-education camp for his tweet. So he took the college's decision to court and said, I'd like a judge to look into this. And the court ruled and found that, well, well no big deal. This is kind of something the college is allowed to do. And in, in Canadian courts, it's not all that surprising if I'm, I'm being perfectly candid here. But this is, for me, a, an interesting one because Jordan Peterson is not really fighting for his life here. He, he's not practicing as a psychologist. The guy is selling out arenas and has books that are selling millions of copies. He doesn't need his licensing with the Ontario College of Psychologists, but it's the principle. And he's standing up for a principle that will affect people that do need that, people whose life's work involves continuing to be a licensed member of the college. 
And, and in the last few years, we've seen a lot more of the, the problems that some people have tried to raise about these regulatory bodies of, of doctors who are otherwise wonderful physicians, but they uh, are finding themselves under the microscope because of how they responded to COVID and how they dealt with uh, some of their patients during COVID. And, and you had doctors that were being told, if you tweet about this, we're going to threaten your license. If you tweet about this. So again, not even things connected to their practice, just things connected to their existence to their identity and to their beliefs. And in the case of Jordan Peterson, I think that he should fight this because he needs to dismantle the entire institution. And, you know, I draw a parallel between his crusade against the college and Mark Stein's crusade against the Canadian Human Rights Commissions uh, and Ezra Levant as well around the same time. You know, Mark has obviously done a lot more with his life than many of the people that may find themselves running afoul of these human rights commissions. I, I don't think it really mattered, and I, I'm not trying to put words in his mouth here, but I, I don't think it mattered for uh, the sake of his life, uh, whether he was allowed to you know, publish critical things in a Canadian magazine because he could just do it in an American magazine and have the First Amendment. But it, it matters for the thing itself. It matters for the freedom to do that for everyone else, people that don't have a larger platform, for the idea of protecting something that is so critical to a free society, which is the right to uh, be blasphemous, the right to be offensive, the right to uh, be snipey and snippy, and and all of these things that you know maybe we think are unpleasant, but are actually entirely legitimate forms of speech and are certainly protected forms of free speech. So for for Jordan Peterson, what he's doing right now is ultimately laying the groundwork for what I hope is much bigger than him and much bigger than Ontario and much bigger than psychologists, which is to say that we shouldn't have people being gatekept out of these regulatory, these regulated industries simply because of their belief system. Because we know it's the, the John O'Sullivan thing, O'Sullivan's first law, that any institution that is not explicitly right-wing will over time become explicitly left-wing. And I question, I mean, I'm, I, I don't have the exact wording of that, but I, I think John also had a much longer view of this process than is really necessary for that to hold in the short term. Because right now we see these changes happening very rapidly where a regulatory college is no longer just about the competence of its members and making sure they all graduated with a degree in psychology and are all doing things that are uh, somewhat scientific. No, they're actually becoming censors and thought police. And this is something that society at large is viewing as entirely normal. Now, I, I will ask about, you know, Kenneth's aspect here. Are Canadians horrified by the treatment of it? I think Jordan Peterson is fascinating in that he has an audience that is not really a political audience because he's tapped into something that has really bypassed the type of people that, you know, pay attention to me and pay attention to Canadian politics or American politics. And, and Russell Brand has done that as well. It's funny because I, I've had, you know, I, I've been working in, in media in some form or another for about 13 years now. And I, you know, like to think I've built up a little bit of an audience here and there. And, uh, you know, I, I did one interview on Russell Brand's show uh, back, I've, I've been on a couple times now, but I did one in particular, and I had, uh, you know, so many people that knew me in real life and had no idea what I did that saw me on that because they were watching Russell Brand. And they weren't watching my show, but they, like, so, like, my personal trainer at my gym that I've, like, talked about with my work, you know, was saying, it was, like, the first thing he had ever seen me do, because that was a show he was watching. And, and Jordan Peterson has done that as well. He, he's carved out an audience that otherwise does not really engage with anything political. And I, I think that's incredibly valuable for him and for people that value freedom because it means that he is getting to set the narrative to real people in a way that the college is not. Uh, that the news as framed through their lens that's really not reaching people. And I think that's where they're going to find themselves up against uh, up against a Goliath. And I don't think they can pull a David on him because he is just going to be too strong uh, because of all the people that are with him on that. So thanks for the questions, Kenneth and Chris. We have a another Chris. That was Chris Davies. Uh, this is a question from Chris Hall, uh, who I've met on the Mark Stein Cruises and hope to see on the next one in the Caribbean. Hi, Andrew. I've long been fascinated by the story of Mayan culture 
in Central America? Uh-oh. I feel I may be outmatched here, but we'll uh, see if I can answer this question. I'm old enough to remember when archaeologists referred to them as being mostly peaceful, but we've since found out that they were just as warlike and bloodthirsty as the later Aztecs. Researchers continue to be mystified by the sudden collapse of Mayan civilization, with the population abandoning huge cities in the space of only a generation. However, aren't we seeing the same thing happening right now in cities like San Francisco, New York, Portland, and so on? Uh, when the basics of life support collapse, you have to leave. My worry is that as people abandon large cities and resettle in their rural remote workhouses, can we ever have a functional society with people being able to build upon the knowledge of the past? Or will we have isolated centers of learning dispersed in the hinterland with a handful of Hillsdales filling the role of Irish monasteries during the Dark Ages? Well, it's certainly a very poetic way of putting the problem. I don't know, maybe the Mayans didn't like their uh, version of the 15-minute cities, so they decided to move out to the suburbs and the exurbs and uh, move out to anywhere but the city. So I don't know if the Mayans were doing the 15-minute city. Actually, I like the idea of the Mayan 15-minute city, come to think of it. But, you know, it, it's interesting because I think ultimately this question is getting at one of the biggest issues that I see now that's not really addressed, which is that one of the greatest fault lines in politics today is not left versus right. It's not white versus black. It's not religious versus non-religious. It's not even rich versus poor. I think it's rural versus urban. And, you know, this is something that is especially true in a Canadian context where you have you know, a relatively small number of, of cities, of, of large cities. In the U.S., you've got, you know, the, the number of cities with a, a population of, of, you know, over, I don't know, 600,000, say, is actually quite significant. And uh, cities that are very mid-tier have large enough populations. So I, I think there's a bit more of an urban-rural divide or a bit more of a, a pronounced urban-rural divide in, in Canada than there is in, in the United States. But I think the dynamics themselves are, are still valid. And uh, you look at uh, J.D. Vance and, and Hillbilly Elegy, and, and you have other uh, people that have started telling the stories. And again, that Oliver Anthony song uh, that we were talking about uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, that really drive this, this point home. And the, the challenge is that there are people who are not rural by choice. There are people who are rural by upbringing, and that's the world they know and the life they know. And then there are the, the people that want that life because they find it charming and because they're a part of the laptop and pajama class that can do their jobs from wherever. And it's amazing how those people are the ones that screw over the others time and time again. I mean, I live in, just to, to use myself as an example, I live in a city that has 400,000 people and, and we're located two hours from Toronto. London, where I am, has always been a, a very affordable place, but it's since become this little best-kept secret, uh, which is no longer a secret, that uh, people in Toronto, especially those who don't need to be in the office Monday to Friday, thanks to uh, COVID zoomifying everything, can now just buy a, a mammoth property in London uh, that is better than the little house they might have had in Toronto. And as a result, all these people who were born and raised in London and who have been making London salaries and London wages uh, can't afford to buy houses here because they're competing against people from Toronto. So I, I think the problem with that is that you, you do have the rich-poor divide there. But you also have so many related aspects of this that are connected. And I'm going far and wide from the Mayan premise of the question here, but I, I think the problem is that we have the urbanization of rural North America right now. And, and what I mean by that is that just as you see people from California going to Texas and bringing their Californian ways, you have people from the cities that are going to uh, smaller towns and smaller communities because they want cheap real estate, they want more land, whatever it is, but they're basically citifying those places. And, you know, the term that I learned from my friends who live in a rural part is city it, where, you know, the people, and I, I, they probably didn't invent it. I just hadn't heard it before then because I'm from a city, so I am one of the city it's. But uh, basically, people that, that just come that are never really a part of that and don't want to be a part of that, and they actually uh, kind of look around and, and view themselves as, as better than everyone there and, and almost wanting to reform them. I mean, like, they, they're doing the old, like, noble savage thing of, like, oh, these little small town folks, they, they, need, they need us to come and, you know, invest and build the land and, and all of this. And I think that's the problem that we're going to see now is that 
you know, you hear all these celebrities, for example, that have bought these mammoth properties, uh, you know, Kanye West in Wyoming and Kelly Clarkson in Montana and all of this stuff. And, and they're not actually small town people. They're just trying to, to basically annex these places. And, you know, if they want to have at it, I mean, I'm all for the right to own and, and have property and do what you want. And I'm all for mobility within a country. But I don't think we've yet seen culturally what's going to happen there. And, you know, I, I may have mentioned this on a previous show, but there's a, a small town near me that has basically been like the last holdout on not wanting to celebrate pride. And, and what I mean by this is there was a city councillor or a town councillor that even put forward a bylaw banning any non-Canadian flags from being flown, by which if you read between the lines, he's saying, I don't want the rainbow flags flown. And, and you know, all of these people from cities have been protesting this because they don't like that this small town has a very traditional way of living and and they just don't like that and they're offended by that. So I actually think Chris that where I disagree with you is that I don't even think we're going to allow those isolated centers in 20 years. Because I don't think that it's that, that the city folks, by which I mean the intellectual elite, the media elite, the political elite, I don't think they're even satisfied letting people like us have our little isolated centers. I think they're going to want to take over it all. And I apologize. I'm hoping maybe we get to some optimism here, but it hasn't happened just yet. Uh, Charlie Citrine writes, Andrew, Mark said last week that we live in an age where competency is important, hence the inherent dangers of filling highly technical roles with underqualified people from minority groups to fulfill ESG quotas rather than, say, the best man for the job. Uh, yada, yada, where does it go here? I lost the part of the screen. Oh, and then let's face it, it usually is a real biological man who may even occasionally be white. But equally, does this not mean that the technocrats are already in charge and any attempt to wrest power away from them and their globalist agenda is doomed to failure? In the modern world, any policy initiative can only be effectively implemented with the cooperation of the deep state. If I... Think about that for a moment. I don't actually know if competency is important all that much. So I, I, I'm trying to remember what Mark said exactly. I think, I think it should be important, but I, I don't actually think competence matters. I think that what's happening is we are seeing people that have a, a, a role to play. And I, I read an interview recently with a, a university student who was conservative, and they basically said that they were having a great time at university because they just knew the right answer to every essay question they got because it was like just to spit out the regular woke lefty stuff uh, because they know that's what the professor wants to hear. And then they're getting 90, and they don't believe anything they're saying. They're not doing any work, but it's very easy to be woke. So that's... I think what we're seeing more of now, where, where people look at the landscape and say, if I want to get ahead, these are the things I have to say, these are the things I have to do. And as Mark has pointed out time and time again, the people in charge don't care if you believe it, they care if you say it. So they're actually okay with everyone looking at the naked emperor and saying, oh, wow, I love his clothes, because as long as everyone goes along with the lie, they get to keep up this illusion of the lie working, and they don't have to deal with independence, because they know if enough people say the quote-unquote right thing, then fewer and fewer people will start to question it, and fewer and fewer people will be exposed, ideally no one will be exposed to wrong things. So... Yes, the technocrats are already in charge because, you know, I, I said when I was on the Mark Stein show free speech panel a couple of weeks ago with Tal and uh, Alexander Marshall and, and Mark, the thing that came up here is that my argument was that self-censorship is the not the most evil form of censorship, but it's the most effective because censorship usually involves an attempt you say something and you're punished or you say something and are prevented from saying it. When you self-censor, the idea dies because the idea is never uttered. It's never brought into reality. No one ever hears it. You are never confronted with uh, the challenging and debating and questioning that will either uh, destroy a wrong idea or enhance a strong idea. So self-censorship is incredibly effective and incredibly dangerous. And right now we have self-censorship happening to a great, great extent. And no one really needs to have external censorship because enough people are looking around and doing what that college student I described a moment ago 
uh, is doing, which is just saying, I know what I have to say to get ahead. And, and in that sense, uh, people are just automatons and the technocrats are in charge. Uh, but I, I also think that the antidote for this is very easy. Uh, it, that doesn't mean it's easy to do, but it's easy to understand, which is to just speak up. Uh, you know, there are more people like Jordan Peterson than there are the people trying to punish him. There are more people like, uh, I mean, like Mark Stein, like me, like a lot of you listening, than the elites would care to admit. And they only have their power when the rest of us feel like we are alone. And there is a little bit of comfort in that. And again, it doesn't mean that you won't face punishment. Certainly the first person to speak out does, but uh, usually when one speaks out, a bunch of people will follow. And yes, it would be great if everyone wanted to be a leader, but even then someone has to, and we need to show that we are larger in number. And I think that the elites are elite for a reason, which means there aren't actually all that many of them. Uh, there is a message here from Allison Castellina, who writes, as I understand it from afar, Professor Jordan Peterson is apparently going to be re-educated partly for criticizing uh, Justin Trudeau. You said recently that Canadians aspire to be more progressive than Americans, and that is the cause of their extremism and now their suppression of free speech. Would you agree with Peterson that they have been too nice or too passive all along, or do most Canadians go along with re-educating Peterson? Well, I, I don't want to belabor this too, too much, because I, I think I already addressed that question in, in a large way earlier, but on where Canadians stand, I, I think most Canadians just don't care about a lot of this stuff, and I, I don't think that's limited to Canada. I think we tend to overstate how many people are interested in the issue. So the point I made in the previous question about, you know, the silent majority, that's the silent majority of the people that care, the people that don't want to just go about their lives. But the difference there and the asterisk there is when people are confronted with this, they care. And in some cases, that confrontation is only when they personally are affected. And that was the thing with vaccine mandates. People that had no interest in politics, no interest in anything, but all of a sudden are being told you have to get this vaccine to go to a restaurant, or you have to get this vaccine to work, or you aren't allowed to have your family Christmas dinner this year. And that politicized people that didn't really care about politics. And it ended up creating a very large and, and vocal movement that the government now has to contend with. And it's the same as Jordan Peterson as well. If you're a fan of Jordan Peterson, even casually, if you've just picked up one of his books or you've picked up a podcast or you caught him on Joe Rogan, and now you're being told anyone who thinks like him, who talks like him, is being ousted from legitimate society, which is basically what the college is doing here, you're going to be mobilized. You're going to be activated in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. And that's the problem. I, I do think Canadians have been too nice. I think even through COVID, Canadians were far more deferential and far more permissive of government and of statism than they needed to be. And I think that's something Canadians will have to contend with. We're not a revolutionary people. But I think we need to have that revolutionary spirit a little bit more than we have uh, what do we have here? Uh, Ella, I, I, I'm going heavy on Canadian content, but I feel Jordan Peterson is good Canadian, non-Canadian crossover here. Uh, Ellen Camo writes, Cher Andrew, I'm just here to make sure that you meet French content requirements. Uh, well, you didn't even ask a question in French except for the Cher Andrew, but I'll say uh, merci, Ellen. It's a, a pleasure. Uh, the first line uh, is all that's left here, but I, I think I can find the rest of it if you give me one moment. Uh, apparently, uh, the, Ellen's question got cut off, but uh, one of my colleagues has said that uh, the rest of her question was roughly from one attempted politician to another. Would anything convince you to return to politics? So actually, when I've uh, been asked if I w would ever run again, I say, uh, yes, but I'm running from it instead of to it. I, I went into politics very briefly in 2018, I was, I, I, in a Canadian election, the elections don't last like six years. So I was able to be in and out of politics in six weeks. By the end of it, I lost the election and I, I moved on and I, I've not looked back. There was one moment in 2022 when there was a vacancy that opened up in a, a riding uh, constituency near me that I would have had a decent chance at had I run again. And I didn't even think about it for a second. I, I was asked about it. People were calling me and saying, hey, are you going to run it? And literally not one second 
did I entertain it? And, and part of the reason is that I have far too much fun doing what I do now. And the other part is that I don't view politics as being the path to truth. And I don't view politics as being the way that the most relevant change will be affected. And it's not to say I, I deny that there is political power, but I, I think, you know, to go back to the point earlier about the deep state, I think that so many of the problems we have now are cultural problems and not political ones. And that even a solid conservative member of parliament or member of provincial parliament in uh, Canada, Ellen ran for the, the People's Party, which is a, a party run by Maxime Bernier that has a tremendous platform, but has not managed to win a single seat in politics. And, and given the current system, we'll have a great deal of difficulty ever winning a seat in Canadian politics, at least in the foreseeable future. So you have to go through that old, uh, that old pattern that Mark has spoken about of winning the argument before you win the election, before you win the vote. And I guess my focus is that, you know, yes, maybe at some point in the future I, I could see a return to politics, but, but a lot would have to change and there would have to be just a perfect storm of events coming together for me to give that serious consideration. But I thank you very much, Ellen. And again, that's not to say it's a bad decision for other people, just not one for me. Matt writes, everywhere we are hearing the rumblings of a return to mask mandates and lockdowns. There also seems to be a lot more grumbling and opposition to a return to COVID stand. So much so, it seems an article of faith on the right that most people won't play along this time. Well, I hope that this is the case. I'm not convinced. I fear a lot of people will cave in and go along with masks and lockdowns. What do you think? I've seen a little flurry of this in the last week. There have been a bunch of like different institutions like hospitals and a couple of campuses that have talked about masks. And certainly in the media, we're seeing stories about this new wave of like, I don't know, the new variant. They haven't given it a nifty name yet. So it's like only got the... British Airways, no, it's not British Airways, it's BA, the BA.2.26 variant or, or something like that. I want to give it the name. I want like the Omicron variant or the Omega variant or, well, we'll never reach the Omega variant because, you know, that means there's an end to this. So I, but it, but it's funny because a lot of this has just been met by mocking and everyone I know that has shared these stories has been sharing it as if to say, I have no interest in doing this. I'm not going along with this. So the one thing that gives me a great deal of hope about this is that by this point, the only people left talking about COVID and talking about masks and talking about, you know, the 17th booster, the only people left are people who are utterly insane. And by that, I mean the people that probably wear four masks when they're showering, the people that wear a mask when they're in their car alone driving, the people like the, they are the only ones talking about this now. And when they do talk about it, they sound so angry and insane that everyone feels bad for them or at the very least doesn't take them seriously. And I love that. I love that they are the spokespeople for masks. I love that they are the spokespeople. Like there's one in Canada who's a, a school board trustee and now in a family doctor and her name is Nilly Kaplan Mirth. And she did an interview not long ago on television where she was in her office alone and it was a Zoom interview. Like everyone was in Zoom boxes and she was there wearing her like N95 mask while she was doing the interview. So they're like, well, you know, Dr. Kaplan Mirth, what do you think? And she's like, well, actually, and you, you know, you've sort of just get a sense of the words she's uttering uh, from beneath the giant mask ahead of her. And uh, someone asked her, the interviewer, who was not a right winger by any stretch, had asked her about a return to normal. And she chided him because she said normal is a far right word. So I, I'm happy with people like her being the spokespeople for the perpetualization of COVID because it means that uh, everyone else wants nothing to do with it. So, uh, you know, people that I think went along with the masking and the lockdowns and the vaccines and the boosters, people that were happy to do that uh, are, are not happy to do it still. So I, I think that government doesn't want to put something in place that will have no legitimacy from day one. Uh, that's not to say they won't try, and that's not to say we won't see little pockets of it and little pushes for it, but I, I'm more hopeful now than I was previously that, that people will not end up going along with this. But I, I also know that, again, some people are, are far too deferential to the government there. Uh, we got a, a couple of U.S. politics questions here. Uh, they, they're, they're long, so I'll try to pull out the 
the uh, the relevant bits here. David Taylor writes, I was wondering if you caught Ron DeSantis at the first GOP debate. More specifically, did you catch his awkwardness while bumbling through a hand-raising question about whether any of them would support the GOP nomination of Trump if he were convicted by Democrats? Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy threw his hand up without hesitation and was the sole Trump savior until Nikki Haley and finally the entire stage left had timidly joined him. Uh, DeSantis never raised his hand, preferring to busily look down at his notes. And then with the audience roaring approval for Vivek, cocked his head left to right to survey the field before timidly coaxing his hand to slowly rise halfway. By the way, I mean, that is just like, that is more entertaining to read your uh, blow by blow of the debate than to have actually watched the debate itself. Does this pathetic dude give you any confidence at all? Uh, and then I have uh, another uh, question here from, uh, I can't actually, I can't, from John Fatchy. There we go. Uh, he writes, uh, here's my view on how the Republican primary is playing out in the U.S. Nikki Haley is the clear favorite of the Rhino establishment. I see her as an eloquent Kamala counterpart. I once believed that she would be the first woman candidate I would vote for, but I see she's attached at the bedroom to the military-industrial complex, and she is the chosen McCain-Romney-Zeldin graceful loser of the RNC. I will abstain. A strange article released to expose her compromised uh, financial issues and a miracle influx of millions of dollars has disqualified her and nullifies her public, strong, independent, principled persona. Uh, Christie hasn't been censured for his thinly veiled racist attack on Vivek. Christie is the straw Republican, the Archie Bunker designed to paint all Republicans as racist slobs. The RNC has a strategy to lose. They practice it in California, New York, and now nationally. And failing to publicly denounce Christie and worse for Brett Baer to scold the voters publicly for rejecting him Expose the RNC Fox nexus as much as election night 2020 has. Pence needs to go away and stop running on Trump's record. It's good for Trump, but a waste of our time. It's shameful to watch. So I, I have a couple of general points, first and foremost, which is that it's interesting to see how people that were treated as heroes in the Republican Party a decade ago are now viewed as, and not without reason, as being rhino establishment hacks. Like, I remember when uh, Chris Christie was all the rage. I remember when Nikki Haley was all the rage. I thought Nikki Haley, even when she was working in the Trump administration, did a tremendous job on the UN. I, I remember that speech where she spoke about the U.S.'s support of Israel uh, when the United Nations Security Council had decided uh, on one of many occasions to just denounce uh, Trump's strong stand for Israel, and she invoked the United States' veto at the UN Security Council and gave a, a scathing indictment of everyone else sitting at that table, and I, I thought she did a very good job there. But again, I remember when, like uh, was being said by John there, Nikki Haley was at one point seen as the future of the Republicans. But as we were talking about a last, uh, last time, I think it was two weeks ago on this very show, uh, the party has changed, and it's become the party of Donald Trump. Every candidate is assessed uh, based on their loyalty to Trump, and I, I don't think that's entirely constructive here. I, I don't think that when you are a losing candidate, whatever happened in that election, when you are a losing candidate, I don't think it should just be a red carpet road to the nomination. I think you should have to earn the nomination. You should have to fight for it. And as we're seeing in the polls right now, the party wants Donald Trump. Now, I don't actually view what Ron DeSantis is doing as, as being disloyal. I think he has a right to put his, you know, whatever foot forward. And I, I think people will decide on that. Here's the thing, though. I don't like Ron DeSantis's... Let me, if, let me back up here. I, I like Ron DeSantis, and I think he's been a very strong governor. And I would like to see him continue. I, I've always viewed him as being a, a very, very strong contender for the presidency. And I think because of the nastiness of this race, I think he's probably blowing it uh, because I, I think it'll be very difficult. Be, like, look, if Trump had run and won and then couldn't serve another term, DeSantis would have been a, a pretty natural successor. Or if Trump won and lost, and then the Republicans needed another guy next time, Ron DeSantis would have been a natural successor for that as well. Whereas when you're the guy that just is getting bloodied and bludgeoned and bruised by Trump, which is what happens when you lose against Trump, it's very difficult for you to come back, which is why people that have been in with Trump and then out with Trump later on have had a very difficult time really establishing themselves as being all that relevant to Republicans. So 
right. I mean, Mike Pence, I remember when Mike Pence was like a hero among, you know, hardline conservatives. I think he had like a, when the American Conservative Union was uh, doing its rankings of, I think he was like the most conservative member of Congress next to like Duncan Hunter or something. And I think even then he had only like aired on one vote and it was something really minor. Uh, but, but again, Mike Pence now is a guy who is basically a joke in the field. And, and, you know, I forget he's running. I forget Chris Christie is running. I wish I could forget Chris Christie is running now that I, I've been reminded of it. But I, I think on the specifics of, you know, Ron DeSantis' performance in the debate, he's in a really, really difficult spot right now, which is that he has become the most viable choice for never-Trumpers who don't actually like him and don't respect him and don't like what he stands for because he was a Trumper up until he decided he wasn't. But then it means that he is basically without a constituency because the people that are not never Trumpers are actually completely happy voting for Trump again. So I think Ron DeSantis is in a very tricky spot. I think the awkwardness that we're seeing from him on the debate stage and in interviews is because he, he no longer can just be himself because he's trying to find a way to carve out a little niche in this race and has, has so far not succeeded. And frankly, I, I don't think will at this point. Uh, we have a message there. Well, we have a couple of messages from Mark, so I'll, I'll let Mark get those upon his return. Uh, we have a message from Elisa. Why call the bad guys elites? They're turds. Don't adopt and accept their own self-descriptive language. Call them turds, wannabe overlords, oppressors, or anything besides elite. You know, it's funny. I, I've actually had this criticism before, and I, I've, I, I've actually struggled to action it which is a legitimate enough thing. I mean, I view elite not as a compliment. I don't view elite as praise. And in fact, I actually don't think they call themselves elites because they're not elite because they're good at something, like we'd say an elite athlete. They're elites because they decide to believe and live as though they're better than everyone else. So I'll, I'll usually throw in overlords every now and then. I know Laura Rosen-Cohen in Laura's link. She's fond of, of talking about our overlords. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe we should come up with a way to out-elite the elites. I, I don't know if I can get away with turds. Uh, turds may be appropriate, but I, I don't know if, you know, Klaus Schwab is just, you know, the king turd of Turd Island in the Turd Mountains of Davos or something like that. I think, you know, the plutocrats are... Uh, that's a term that we can use to describe them from time to time, but uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll try to come up with another one by uh, the next time we're uh, in this seat here. KD writes, last time you were in the hot seat, you wrote about or spoke about Oliver Anthony's song, Rich Men North of Richmond, and how it's a working man's anthem. Now, some on the right are claiming he's a plant or even worse, a Democrat, as if Democrats can't be upset with many of the same things as those on the right. Have your thoughts about him changed at all? So he's actually proven to be quite, what's the best word for it? He's proven to be quite inconvenient for a lot of conservatives. You know, Mark has always joked that the problem with conservative celebrities is that the list of conservative celebrities is just a napkin with the name Pat Boone scribbled on it. And, you know, yeah, you can find a couple of examples uh, of conservative-ish celebrities. But my approach to this has always been that conservatives shouldn't play the game as the left. We're never going to win in having all the celebrities, so let's not even compete. Let's not be happy when Kanye West uh, is a Republican for five minutes or, you know, Kim Kardashian says something mildly favorable about taxes. Uh, let's not uh, play that game because we're going to lose and I also don't think it's particularly useful. But conservatives still get so jealous of the fact that the left has the George Clooney's and the, uh, I don't know, I'm struggling to think of a celebrity right now, and the Jennifer Lopez's and the Cher's and, you know, why you'd be jealous of having Cher on your side, I don't know. But, uh, but the right kind of secretly longs for that. So anytime someone famous or talented comes up, they want to claim them. And, you know, Oliver Anthony... His song, Rich Men North of Richmond, was not a conservative song. I think it was a song that spoke about things that uh, people on the right have often been better at talking about, certainly now and, and in recent years. But it was a, a song about class. It was a song about the rich versus the poor, about the rural versus the urban, about the, uh, the turds, to use Elisa's term, versus the oppressed. It was not about Republican or Democrat. It was not about right or left. And that, to me, was what made it so powerful because uh, people surely should have realized that these dividing lines, these fault lines, these schisms are, are not 
what is really at stake. They're not the real ones that we need to be focusing on here. But I think as a result, conservatives have kind of typecasted him and claimed him. And here's a guy who's never claimed to be a conservative. And, you know, he has now been sort of held up as being this right-wing hero. And I, I think in interviews I've seen with him, he, he's been very uncomfortable with that because he could turn around and, and say and has said a lot that the right does wrong in his eyes. And I think that's where we need to be very careful and not thinking that the answers are going to lie in politics and that the answers can be reduced down to these very trite and very antiquated left-right binaries. So I, I don't think he's a plan. I think he's a guy that has a tremendous voice. And I think that he's a guy that was very talented and is very talented. And it's a song that was very real and very raw. And, you know, yes, from there, you can talk about how inorganic the marketing of it was, but but that that's all window dressing. I, I don't think we, we should read anything into that. I think there were a couple of people that saw, hey, I know how we can make this a viral hit and here's what we're going to do. And they did it. But that doesn't make the message any less real and the guy any less real. And I think the fact that you can see him in every interview he's doing, really struggling with how to identify himself, shows how real he is. But who is more authentically representative of the people that we need to speak to? Someone who really can't identify what their political beliefs are with a label that fits universally or someone that knows I'm a Republican and I always vote Republican and this is why. I think it's clearly the Oliver Anthonys, the people that do not fit into a box. And, and they're the people who matter because you know, who wants to live in a box? We are winding down our time together. I'm just uh, trying to find a perhaps lighter one that uh, we can end on here. There is a message from Eric Dale. In lighter news, what are your thoughts on the death of the dollar menu at McDonald's? I went in to get a Diet Coke today and my soda was just about $2. Uh, soda, that's how you can tell you're an American asking the question. Where during the Trump administration, it was a little over a dollar. Thanks, Joe Biden. On top of that, they gave me regular and two sips later, I had swollen back up like the little girl who ate the experimental candy and turned into a giant blueberry in Willy Wonka. Before for the Oompa Loompas, roll me away. What are your thoughts on what the McDonald's menu looks like, as well as the other prices, uh, when the U.S. dollar is no longer the world's <laughs> reserve currency? So actually, uh, in, in, in Canada anyway, McDonald's still has like a dollar drink thing on special occasions. Because I, I was going through, I actually like McDonald's coffee, generally speaking. And I was going through the drive-thru the other day and they had like, uh, it was a $1 coffee or a $1 iced coffee as some sort of special promotion. So I, I decided to uh, splurge for like the $1.15, uh, which was the upsize version of it. So uh, maybe this is like, you know, a, a promotion and not an example to, that inflation is out of hand. Uh, or maybe I'm just lucky as a Canadian. Because again, that's like, you know, the $1 Canadian, that's like five cents American. Uh, so that was actually, you, you could actually have 20 coffees for your dollar if you came up north to uh, Canada, Eric Dale. The first one's on me. But I, I think like anything else, it, it's broken. And, you know, I went in, I, I was driving by uh, this little uh, supermarket that I, that I like that's on the other end of town, and I don't often go there. And I, I just, we didn't need any groceries, my wife and I, but I was driving by yesterday and I popped in and, you know, got a few things. And I, I went through the express lane which means I had eight items or fewer because I'm not one of these people that brings nine or 10 or, you know, 20 items through the express lane. And I, I ended up spending like $45. And I, you know, I, I look at what I got and it was nothing particularly exceptional. I didn't buy like, you know, the, the gold flake uh, foie gras dipped in truffles or anything like that. I, I got that today at another store. So, but, but, you know, I, I look at this and I'm very fortunate in that I don't really need to look at the prices on stuff like that, like some families do. And I'm, I'm very acutely aware of, of how difficult this is. And it's the little things because you may think, okay, well, a dollar coffee, a $2 coffee, it's still a, a small discretionary purpose, but it's always the little things that reflect the bigger problems and, and the bigger things that are unaffordable and out of reach. And uh, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a, a little political battle in Canada where a conservative government in Ontario said we're going to bring back $1 beers because there was some stupid law on the books 
that said uh, there was a, a price floor for beer and that companies were not allowed to have a beer with a retail price of less than, I think it was $1.25 at the time or $1.30. And he said, we're going to bring back dollar beer. So they dropped that to a dollar. But it was such a moot point because at that time, inflation already had driven up the cost of producing beer to beyond the point where you could have it. So there was like a couple, there were a couple of companies that had their, you know, novelty dollar beers that were not good that no one liked because the cost of beer was just more than that. So uh, that was an example of where it's not really about the individual price of the coffee at McDonald's. It's about everything. So uh, next time I will perhaps swing by McDonald's and take a closer look at the menu so I can better address that question. But uh, to everyone, thank you so much for your questions. This will be up at Stein Online a little bit later on. We'll have uh, some film analysis from the fantastic film columnist Rick McGinnis in Rick's Flicks tomorrow and lots more at Stein Online over the weekend and into next week. So uh, thank you so very much for tuning in. This is Andrew Lawton in for Mark. God bless you and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you.